One of these days, you'll have a special operations capability of your own. So I've come here to tell you something. Special operations doesn't mean going in with all guns blazing. It means special planning, special care. Fully briefed agents in possession of all possible alternatives. If you want James Bond, go to your library. But if you want a successful operation, sit at your desk and think. And then think again. I understand. Our battles aren't fought at the end of a parachute. They're won and lost in drab, dreary corridors in Westminster. And hopefully in Oslo. Yes. Well, thank you for being so restrained. You, you have a few minutes. Maybe we could take a drink together. I've got nothing to celebrate. Well, nonetheless, I would like to buy you a drink. Edovic, if I had a glass in my hand at this moment, I'd shove it down your throat. And I'm Brent. We're finishing out our second year with one of your favorite Doctor Who podcasters and part of the three who rule, Warren Fry. We'll discuss his podcast beginnings, his creation of Bookshelf Doctors, and the recently completed Series 11. After that, we'll delve into Warren's TV pick of the month and enter the smoke-stained halls of late 70s, early 80s UK spy drama and witness that deadliest of games, bureaucracy. Thrills a Cold War heats up as men in suits smoke indoors. File paperwork, smoke out of doors, insult their secretaries, smoke over the corpses of the recently assassinated, and politely quibble over budgets as we examine three seasons of Ian McIntosh's astoundingly good The Sandbaggers. But first we're checking in with James, Ian, and Adam as they discuss the current state of fandom in the UK following Series 11, and how long we'll have to wait until Series 12. And all that's coming up right after this. And welcome to the London branch of Who and Company and Season's Greetings from a very festive London office, although it's a little bit pokey. Um, and we're a bit squashed today because there are three of us. So today, all of our London team are here to wish you a Merry Christmas. It's my former Happy New Doctor Year. Who. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, all right. Well, I wasn't going to introduce you first, but I will now. Uh, <laughs> it's Adam J. Purcell from Staggering Stories. Hello, Adam. Hi there, how are you doing? I have no idea why I feel the need to use your entire name, including your middle initial, when I introduce <laughs> you, but I, uh, I do for some reason. There um, is actually another podcast called Adam Purcell, an American. Is there really? Does he podcast about Doctor Who stuff? No, no, no. Oh, well, okay, so that's where the confusion finishes, really. And Pretty much. Um, <laughs> Conversely, Ian, you're there too. Where's my middle initial? <laughs> I don't know what your middle initial is. Do you have a middle initial? Of course I have a middle initial. I am Ian T. Dudley. 
Tiberius, obviously. Yeah, clearly. Mm. Hello, everyone. Hello, James. <laughs> we are going to be talking a little bit about the fallout now that season 11 has finished. Um, we'll just talk mm. a little bit about, I don't know, the public awareness or public consciousness of Doctor Who and also talk about uh, when we can expect the show to come back um, mm. and uh, various other bits and pieces that have been in the Doctor Who world. All right. So, first of all, season 11, I mean... How how do you two think it has gone down? Certainly within uh, the UK, uh, are you talking about it in the offices or where you work? Are you talking about it with your friends, or has it just kind of died out after broadcast? Hmm. I'm not personally talking about it with my colleagues. Fairly new jobs. I haven't really told them. They don't know about all this stuff. But I, the general buzz I get is that um, the younger people, as it were, are are more into it than ever, which is good. Hmm. So the the the, uh, the kids are back in and their parents to an extent. Where were you getting that from? Well, I'm getting that from uh, some of my other podcaster friends who have got kids or know people who have kids, uh, and their mm. colleagues at work and what have you. Uh, it seems to be the people who ha- are less impressed are the old-time fans. <laughs> Us lot. Um, but okay. the wider public, certainly the younger audience part of it, seem to be on board and uh, quite pleased and... So are we yeah, seeing we a passing of the baton, really, then, from the old guards to uh, to the new oh, Twitch wow. generation, perhaps? I, I think we saw the passing of that baton years ago. I mean, I remember going to Cardiff with you during the Matt Smith era, the first of those <laughs> BBC conventions, and, and being totally surrounded by teenagers, and not just teenagers, but teenage girls, and thinking, yeah. it wasn't like this when I was that age. No, What's no, happened? No. Uh, and, and we were massively, massively outnumbered by, by young people who were fans of the show. Uh, and that was years back. I mean, mm. yes, you can still go to some of the slightly more uh, BO-driven yeah. uh, conventions that come and happen in funny little corners. And yes, it is still the old guard. Yeah. But actually, as soon as you get near the actual current show, I think we are very much in the minority already. And good thing, too. Yeah, I think perhaps in 2010, 2011, I think that was the time when the car, when Cardiff... Uh, staged or hosted those those big conventions there was very much um uh, an amalgam really of new and old fans it wasn't so much mm. a, a, a a transition at that point it was just that we were infiltrated by a whole load of new people um, <laughs> uh, who are generally young and women um, where, where, whereas now you've, you've they actually outnumbered got the old us about guards. 20 to 1 I'm, I'm, I, I think if anyone's infiltrating anything we were infiltrating them because <laughs> they hugely outnumbered us don't know i'm not sure if you're talking <laughs> at one particular event or fandom in general here but i do get the point that you're making certainly what i'm trying to say is has the old guard taken a further conscious step back since season 11 as transmitted i, I certainly think that the old guard is less happy with season 11 than they were with the direction it was i think particularly the last couple of years of, of moffat he, he was playing a lot of fan service there was an awful lot of the old callbacks it was getting awfully self-referential which actually I don't think was a good thing for the show. I think we lost, yeah, lost some of the kids and what have you in that era, unfortunately. Yes, um, and, and now Ch- Chibnall has, has absolutely flushed all that stuff, and I, I can barely think of any old school references that came up. There was one or two very, very lightweight passing ones. That Fez I and what have you? Yeah, think, think of much else. And he, he, even the Fez is actually a, a modern reference. So if you go back right, further yeah. into the the original classic series that that, that old timers cling on to. I think I think I did spot one or two, but they were very very small. Yeah, I can't even and, think and, of any. And that's fine, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm I'm fine with that. But I can see why those people, the Gallifrey Base Brigade, mm. would would 
say all the things they always say and and that's what they like doing it's interesting <laughs> you use the phrase lost the kids because i i would say yeah you, you're probably not not wrong but now you've got you know the twitch generation um and that that whole initiative was yeah. very much directed at those kids and and season 11 as as, as both of you have alluded to seems to be very popular with the young young fans once again so perhaps we are seeing just a a, a further morph really of, uh, of the demographic of of british fans that's good it should cover everybody so it's a little bit of a shame that some of us oldies are not unhappy with it but certainly less enamoured than we might have been but you know that's our problem not not their problem isn't it <laughs> <laughs> well but- it, it's interesting if you take a look at the uh the, the viewing figures and i think if you look at the um uh the, the audience uh, uh, as a whole then there clearly was a fascination and an interest in oh, yeah. in the casting because yeah. the the it, it was a massive massive spike and overall the average viewing figures are up however mm-hmm. the decline uh throughout the series was very very sharp indeed by the end day yes unfortunately I don't know what that, why that was, but well, it was, I, I think it's either because that interest, and again, Adam, when you and I spoke on Who and Company a couple of months or so ago, um, we talked about what happens when a novelty wears off, because yeah. of course everybody's going to be tuning in who's ever had a, a vague interest in Doctor Who just to see what a female actor in the lead role is going to be going to be like, yeah. um, and, and I think you said what happens once that novelty wears off, and actually, what's happened if you look at it from a statistical point of view is that they've just tuned in and then popped off again and mm. <laughs> um and, and then perhaps we're relying on story uh, to keep people and and again that's one of the criticisms predominantly from the old guard um as we've been saying that the stories haven't been as strong this year despite yeah. the fact that moffat was clearly self-referential and up his own bottom in certain areas uh, <laughs> but, but he could um, write a good script <laughs> but he could write a good script so you know it, it, it's it's interesting to try and gauge you know where the critical mass of, of, of fans are, you know, does it really matter that the old guard, in other words, think that this may not be as strong story-wise? No. Or actually, is it all about flashy, glitzy things, uh, things that don't have to have, um, you know, the kind of resolution and um, long, long um, story arcs uh, that we're used to? I, I, I think there has been a lack of pizzazz to make you really want to see next week's episode now the cliffhangers or the through lines or the stories or the anticipation of a returning foe i mean we had one returning foe but it it, it was the strange gentleman that i don't think personally (laughs) oh what power ranger yeah i can't even remember his name and tim uh, shaw didn't actually have that's the one yes he didn't make much of an impression upon me no and i i think yeah there there was a there, there wasn't stuff that made you want you know when i saw the next week's you know, teaser every week. It wasn't. Oh, I can't wait to see that. It was okay. There's gonna be another story next week, and mm. I, I and actually that was the feel I got from most. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, I've also changed jobs, so I'm afraid I can't tell you about co-workers. But my my teenage boys watch it, and their friends watch it, and uh, I watch it with my wife, and uh, the, the teenagers have quite enjoyed it, uh, and they've certainly been keen to watch it every week. I think outside of that, most of the adults I know are not all that taken. It's not bad but it's not sword either uh with the possible exception of rosa but then i think that's a very atypical story and almost not a doctor who story because the hero wasn't the doctor and the bad guy wasn't the bad guy and it was a lovely story but it was it was so unusual i'm not sure you can really uh, Hmm. relate it to the rest of the series and 
probably my favourite, I would have to say, of uh, of the series as well. But I don't disagree with any of the things that you've just said. Yeah. Interesting then. Interesting. Okay. Well, looking further into the future, as uh, as you do when you talk about a show about time travel, no series 12 to 2020. Um, I, mm. I think that sounds dramatic. It does. Yeah. And <laughs> fandom has kind of reacted very badly. But I, I am I am really annoyed about this. I am really annoyed about this. Having just lasted through a whole year of gap, and you think, okay, well, fine, they need to get their their stuff together, and it's a new era, and fine, we'll go through another hiatus, and you know, we're, we're all old enough to, to shiver at the words hiatus, <laughs> um, but and then you know, ten episodes, eleven episodes, and straight back into another one again, and it's like, oh, come on. This you has know. been the pattern ever since RTD left, though. We've never had uh, a new series start a year after the previous one. It's always been roughly 18 months. Yep. I agree with that entirely. Um, season 10 uh, finished in July 2017, and um, season 11 didn't start until, what, October, I think? So, yep. you know, a year and three months or thereabouts. And it'd be the same um, again. So, it's going to be a year and three months. Assuming, yeah. of course, it's going to start in January. The only thing I think is really worth picking out of the the, the timeline is that um, at least we got a Christmas episode uh, last year. Whereas next year, if we're not going to see Doctor Who back on our screens until January or February, it's conceivable it's not going to be a special at all. Well, um, there'll be the so... New Year one. There's no Christmas one this year. So we've got a New Year one on the 1st of January 2019. Will there be one into in... 2020 though this is probably. the thing if, yeah mm, so we'll probably well, I, th- I, think, I think we'll see something th- th- this time next year I think we'll see one and then a teaser for whatever, whenever they're going to broadcast it in 2020 well, I, that I would just, have to be yeah. filmed relatively early then, presumably, because mm. they've just gone into production now for season 12. And presumably then the very first thing that they're going to be recording or one of the first things they'll be recording is the Christmas special or New Year's special for 2020. Yeah, yeah that, would, that would make sense. And it's happened um, before. Uh, Capaldi, he had a, a year gap where he had two Christmas specials back to back. Yeah, there's been various times and it's done. And, you know, Game of Thrones has just done the same thing. And we've been waiting over a year to get to the next season of that. I've forgotten just... everything about the last season of Game of Thrones. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and watch it again. Should do. I, I'm just not sure that at the moment Doctor Who's got enough momentum to get over that gap. Because I think yeah. this season was a little on the flat side. Yep. It, it, it didn't soar. It didn't f- fall on its face, but it didn't soar either. And, you know, for, for what little momentum it's built up, I think it'll all evaporate away again. So the problem with targeting the younger audience is because a year for them is a lot longer than it is a year for us. A year for us is, feels like no time at all these days. But if you're <laughs> eight, nine years old, a year feels like half a lifetime. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Particularly if the stories are, as you say, Ian, slightly lightweight compared to the previous couple of seasons I'm, I'm not sure that's completely true but it feels like that certainly one thing mm. i will um just raise before we we finish uh, before we end up outstaying our welcome once again <laughs> is that when when you consider all of the um, debate um you know quite passionate debate that was raging about the casting of a female uh, doctor uh, prior to this series how do you feel now that you've seen the series and the gender change has been reduced to a minor plot point in fact mm-hmm. it's probably hasn't really mattered at all in story terms, perhaps yep. with the exception of 
the witch finders. I mean, I'd even argue they, that. Is, I think a male doctor could easily have been accused of being a warlock or whatever. I think that's probably mm. true, actually, as well. So is, is that a misstep? I mean, was it worth yeah. doing? Was it worth making such a major change if it's going to affect the output of the programme so little? Yes, absolutely. I, I think she's uh, a great actor. I think she's doing a good job. I'm liking her characterisation. Yeah. And I think that they've absolutely nailed it that five minutes after she started playing the role, it's just the Doctor and you completely forget all about it. And that's exactly how it should have been done. And I'm, I'm really pleased they've got that right. And, you know, I, I come back to why not? Why not do it? There's no good yeah. reason not to do this. Yeah. And it's not affected the stories. No, and it was great for ratings. It brought a lot of new interest in and potentially a lot of people in who wouldn't have watched any otherwise. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a, a, a good move. I think she's done a really good job. I really love her characterization of the Doctor. I do feel like she hasn't been given the best material to work with. I, I, I'm still wanting mm. that that really great crowning moment of awesome uh, kick-bottom moment that we usually get with a, a fresh <laughs> Doctor, which she hasn't been given that opportunity in my mind. But nonetheless, I, I love right. what she's doing with it. I, th- I think you're right. I think the way that it's being written now is the Doctor is not the um, central character in the way he was in previous uh, seasons. And uh, I, th- I think actually if yeah. you take a look at where where the only through story or through line all through all the episodes, it's all about the only white male <laughs> in that team TARDIS. <laughs> it's all about Graham, which is yeah. somewhat ironic. Uh, but having said that, we're only partway through the story, so you never know. Season 12 is probably going to develop it and change it. And, wow. uh, of course, Jodie Whittaker, I think, will be given far more meaty stuff now that the writers would have seen what she does yeah. uh, with the lines that they've given her. So, yeah. anyway, Adam... Ian, thank you once thank again you. for dragging the quality of this podcast down with me. And, <laughs> <Anytime>. uh, <laughs> and uh, have a very, very Merry Christmas to you and everyone else listening at home as well. Thanks, guys. We'll be having our UK team back in just a few weeks as part of our annual holiday special that we always have. This time we'll be discussing resolution and we'll also be doing a recap of all of Series 11 right before our third season begins. So looking forward to that. And right now, here's our interview with Warren Fry. The author of the document is a very senior SIS officer. Oh, of course. A JIC document. John Tower Gibbs? And his arguments are cogent and persuasive. His arguments always are. I met him outside just now. Oh? In the street. We exchanged mild unpleasantries. I waited to see if he'd get killed crossing the road. Never find a taxi when you need one. <laughs> Our guest this month is the final member of three who ruled to appear on Who and Company. For over 12 years, he's accomplished the impressive feat of doing a podcast episode almost every single week on Radio Free Scarrow. And we hope he's recovered from the possession of Wotan to be with us today. Have I, though? (laughs) Warren Fry, welcome to Who and Company. Hello, hello, hello. Wotan must be obeyed. (laughs) In all things. Warren, welcome to the show. Thanks for for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me on, guys. You, yeah, we, we've, we, uh, I think this is our second or maybe even third attempt to get you on, thanks to scheduling and, and 
in some kerfuffle a little earlier on. I think it was even maybe even last year or it could have been. I have here. I have a terrible schedule that, or an inconvenient one. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you could lie and just say that you're just in demand on podcasts. <laughs> that's that's yeah. not. I we think would hear like... that. Then you would hear those podcasts, and I am not on them. So. <laughs> <laughs> We had to get on the Warren Fry waiting list. Uh, <laughs> Such a thing does not exist. It's more like I have work stuff I got to do. And it's when somebody asks, I have a week where I'm in a hotel somewhere, that kind of stuff. Wait, you mean you're not a professional podcaster? Uh, <laughs> how do I answer that? We have a Patreon. I can't live off it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, speaking of podcasting, how did you first get uh, – how did you first discover podcasting? This what made is, you want to get involved? This is a, a kind of a weird pre-podcasting thing. For, um, there's two things I used to listen to back in the day. And this is like when people would just put MP3s up and you download them. So before quote-unquote podcasts officially were a thing, uh, one was on the media, which is still around. It's the NPR show or from WNYC. Um, and I still listen to it this day and it's, you would just download the MP3 and listen to it. And the other one was some guy in, I think Ohio and he had a show called retro gaming radio and it was all about Hmm. old video games and that's old circa 1999, 2000 or so. Um, so really old video games and he had a real hatred for anything 3d, which I just found funny. I didn't agree with him, but I, (laughs) but he was really good at ranting about it. So, so a a, a trade I kind of share. So so I would listen to that. And then when podcasts showed up, I started listening to all Leo Laporte stuff because um, I thought he was doing a really good job with it. Uh, and he was producing a ton of it. Um, and then in a weird twist of fate, a couple of years later, I ended up working on a show in Vancouver. <laughs> and then he left in an even weirder twist of fate. So that was the end of that. During all that, I was I went and talked to Stephen because Stephen and I had been um, podcast, uh, not podcast, uh, master control operators in in TV in Edmonton. And there was a Teletoon is the Canadian Cartoon Network. And we had <clears throat> Teletoon East and Teletoon West. And on a shift, you'd sit next to each other. And so everybody hated us when we sat next to each other. Us, all we did is, surprise, surprise, talk about Doctor Who. So so we'd do it for eight hours straight. And people were like, what the hell is wrong with you? And like, we're the only two people in the entire city who like Doctor Who, from what we could tell. Um, and, and at one point, I just told them years after we'd both quit that job, why don't we do this for an hour a week? Because it's obvious we can. And so we didn't do it for about a year and then we finally did get around to doing it and ta-da here we are 12 years later well 12 12 years is a long time to devote yourself to anything so um has putting out a weekly podcast become easier with time i mean the thing is we just i don't remember exactly when we went to a full schedule but it was pretty early on and we just stuck with sunday and it it, it just became a habit so it's not really all that difficult to do and it, well, honestly it's not difficult because steven does all the scheduling <laughs> so so he figures all that stuff out and we just tell him yeah yay or nay if we can if we can do it and uh and then we find ways around it and so there's a little bit of juggling involved but we get it done and and you know it's worst for me and worst in quotes because uh it's at eight in the morning vancouver time and so I have to stumble out of bed no matter what condition I'm in. So, which, which as the years have gone on, has become less of a burden, frankly. But, <laughs> but in the early days, I'm like, I uh, no. <laughs> but, but now it's a little better. So, um, no, it's not tough at all. I don't think it's, and it's because we're just so used to doing it. It's become like second nature. I think. That's cool. Um, well, speaking of early days, how did you first discover Doctor Who? Well. Um, KSPS Spokane was the PBS station that we got in Edmonton and Calgary too. And the weird thing is that we, uh, we as in Alberta, would spend more money like on pledges than anybody in Spokane ever did. Like they relied on Canada for PBS money. I'm not really sure how that works because it's an American network, but 
because we couldn't get British stuff really any other way other than the odd thing on CBC at like midnight, that was our main place to get British material. And that, when it was tough to get, like back in the 80s, it was not that easy. So I just happened to be flipping the dial one night and see, um, I think episode one, but one of the episodes of Robot showed up and I was like, what is this madness? And I just stuck with it ever since. Like crazy man in a scarf, I'm in. Robot is your first one? Yeah, Robot is my first one. Uh, Tom Baker is my first doctor and still my favorite doctor. Mostly because of my childhood, essentially. But still, he's still one of the best doctors as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, so and then I just never stopped watching from there. Although it's touch and go during the Wilderness Years, I have to admit. Uh, well, he's your favorite and there's no need to ask who your least favorite doctor is. <laughs> no, I'm pretty vocal about that. <laughs> yeah. So Tom Baker, what about the new doctors? She's great. Um, if you want to talk new doctor rankings, I would say Matt Smith's probably the top one. Although Jody's not that far behind, honestly. Uh, and then I would say Tennant, and then Capaldi, and then Eccleston. Not that any of them are bad. It's just that's you know that's how they fall in the ranks, I guess. Yeah, that's cool. Do you um, what was it exactly? So you're flipping through. You see Madness. You see Scarf. I mean that robot. Robot's a really frenetic episode. There's a lot going on. There's some pretty cool special effects. There's some relatively bad CSO. Um, what is it that appealed to you? Like all why, all why stop <laughs> and watch, or is it just enjoying the chaos? Uh, uh, it, it's chaos, yes. The fact that he's a different hero than you'd see normally. Because, like, think about what's on at the same time. you got V, the series, which is a bunch of people with guns. you got Battlestar Galactica, which is a bunch of people with guns. You know, typical, I don't want to say typical American stuff, but typical American sci-fi, is, especially back then, was a bunch of people with guns, right? And, uh, and this is not that. This is some witty guy who's running around with a bucket full of slop, <laughs> killing a really bad-looking robot. Plus, I just love the bad special effects. That's never changed for me. I love the worse, the better. I'm like, at least you're committing to this. At least you know it's bad and you don't care, <laughs> So, which I thought was great. And plus, it was just being the contrary person and especially kid that I was. People at school hated it. I'm like, well, I'm on board then. <laughs> so, um, uh, we, we talk, okay, you like you talk about the television that was on at that time. Um how about movies? Uh, Movie-wise, were you a bad sci-fi fan? Like, did you actively like go to the video store uh, for younger video uh, listeners? Uh, these those things used to exist. Um, <laughs> you used to go to the video stores and get like bad bad sci-fi. Uh, sometimes, movies? yeah. I actually <laughs> this is a little later, but there was um I think it was might have been Roger Corman or somebody else, but they came out a, with a movie called Frankenhooker, and it's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> but no, Frankenhooker is amazing. <laughs> but the great thing about the box is that you press it and it goes, "Want a date? Want a date?" So I torture my sister with with this box. When we'd run, "Want a date? Want a date?" <laughs> um, yeah, I would go out of my way, and in fact, I do that to this day. If I can side uh, do a side recommendation for uh, these guys out of Winnipeg called Astron 6 they make those kind of movies now and they're funnier than hell and they they wink to the camera but just enough you can tell they love this genre too so oh yeah I'm down that sounds fantastic yeah. Father's Day I think somewhere the there's a, an extended interview with Bill Murray talking about like for an hour and a half about Frankenhooker his love of that movie. Yeah, it's it's just you know, like Dead Heat with Joe Piscopo and Treat Williams. That kind of stuff was just... I also had Super Channel, which was like the low-budget HBO, which actually also was out of Edmonton, weirdly enough. Ended up working there. But they would run this stuff all the time. So you'd get to see stuff like Abraxas and it's just, uh, just garbage. Oh, a, lot of, a lot of that stuff was, was Canadian-funded, too, don't forget. So that's why yeah. it would show up on Canadian TV. Because cause for in the 70s... And I think the early 80s, but definitely the 70s and maybe the 60s, um, you could get tax credits for, for making movies. So just a bunch of garbage got made because you could just write <laughs> off on taxes. That was definitely the kind of thing that 
that I, I as a, a, a viewer, like I was raised on bad mm-hmm. science fiction. Like my father would actively go, "This looks like garbage. Let's watch it," you know, <laughs> and, and that sort of uh, aesthetic uh, definitely seeped into the things that I read, the things that I watched, uh, any kind of the art that I liked. Um, and it's a shame that, that that you know that's not commercially supported. So you're not going to find a Braxis action figures. No, you're not going to find. Although I do have uh, a DVD <laughs> set of the Star Lost. Which is one of the oh, worst. Wow, <laughs> and it's and it's just. I mean, you have to accept that it's bad and just sort of sit back and let it wash over you, and then it's good because <laughs> it's got even worse CSO than Doctor Who. It's like, and, and that's because it was made in Canada by a bunch of Americans, but it was made in Canada. Oh wow! At a time when nothing was made, it's not like you know, even twenty years ago, and especially now in Vancouver when there's a ton of shows shooting up here. That was nothing came up here. They only did it because it was cheap. I'm constantly amazed, and, and I talk to the uh, a lot of the kids that I work with or I go to conventions with, and I tell them, you know, I try to stress how lucky they are that if they like something that is that is coming out currently, you know, anything contemporary, they're going to get any kind of VAM that they want. They're going to be able to get toys of it. There's going to be fan art that is easily accessible online. It's kind of amazing it's insane. to see... Like I would watch Battlestar Galactica in French because that's all you had. Like there was just there was just nothing. Like when I would see some bad sci-fi goof off on a sitcom, I'd be like, "It's better than nothing." Like because you didn't get anything else, you just didn't. Sure. And Van was Starlog magazine. That was it. Yeah. Did you have the uh, Battlestar Galactica figures? Uh, I had the toys as a, actually the story behind that is my parents would buy good toys for us as kids. They bought us Fisher Price and Lego and and stuff that was actually you know kind of useful and held up and one year I just whined because I wanted this must have been 1978 because that's when Battlestar Galactica was out I whined that I wanted the Battlestar Galactica stuff and so they got it for me to prove a point that this stuff was garbage and they were right (laughs) and it stuck with me to this day 40 odd years later well let's talk about toys because um, in addition to doing podcasting uh, are you still involved with the bookshelf doctors? I am and in fact I don't know when this is going out but uh, there's going to be a new and different bookshelf doctors coming out tomorrow the 21st of December I am very much looking forward to it, having seen uh, a, a slight teaser of it. So, yes, uh, yes, indeed. Oh, it's getting around then. Damn. <laughs> no, I think you sent it to me. Oh, well, so, then, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, way to go, me. <laughs> i forgotten. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit how um, Bookshelf Doctors uh, came about. Oh, well, I, I every year I'd go to Gallifrey One, the convention, and I would buy different figures, and one or two at a time, and it just kind of built up over 10 years to the point where I have this giant pile of Doctor Who figures and I have a general rule with the bookshelf doctors they're either Doctor Who figures or stupid Doctor Who figures or stupid figures otherwise <laughs> because because it makes sense to have dumb stuff because then you can make funny stuff out of it um, and so I just said to myself one day well I've got these things sitting here and they're taking up space and I'm not going to get rid of them so what else can I do with them and I was like oh I work for a newspaper I know how to lay out uh, this stuff I can use InDesign and Illustrator to just put this thing together so I did and uh, and the current iteration which is like one panel stuff I have to thank David Barsky for that because he came up to Vancouver and I had to go on a work trip so I let him stay at my place him and his wife and he would send me hostage panels <laughs> of my action figures. (laughs) And so I took those pictures and made them into one panel things with his quotes underneath them. And I just kind of went from there to make my own stuff. So, so he was the inspiration for the current iteration of that. Well, thank you, Barsky. Yes. (laughs) I I, I enjoy it. I I think you've got a a very uh, cutting wit when it comes to, I mean, that's, it's one panel is so difficult because you have to, you know, everything has to be self-contained, well, it's, done once, yes. and it has to be able to, you know, you have to be able to see where the history came from and where that story is going. In, sen- in one sense, that's true, but 
laying out multiple panels is even tougher. So, so oh sh- I, yeah, from a technical aspect, yeah. I, I you know I all of that as far as I'm concerned is witchcraft. Um, but from a writing standpoint, just being able to come up with one line, I I have. Uh, quite a bit of respect for well, anyone thanks. who can pull Mostly I use the Marvel method. I'll just put two of them against each other and go, what can they say to each other? I'll just take the picture first and then force myself to think of a line. Uh, and yeah. and recently I, I bought, thanks to Steven Stepanski, he bought, he bought this thing for his Lego guys. Uh, it's basically, it's a white box with a light in it that you can put like different backgrounds against. Uh, and it was $30 on Amazon. I'm like, well, this is a no-brainer. So I got it. And now I'm putting like blue green screen backgrounds behind these guys, which <laughs> the ratings are up for whatever the hell that means. <laughs> <laughs> no, they look good. They look good. I mean, um, you know, you, like I said, you you know, it takes a, quite a bit of talent to be able to write something along those lines. And I, you mentioned the Marvel method, which I think is kind of quite brilliant because anyone who's study comics and i know that you're certainly one of those people yeah. you know that most of it is just here's a basic outline artist go do the art and then they'll write all the rest of the script and dialogue around that method yeah which is and like, i kind of get rid of the outline work. i just i just take the pictures and then figure out what the hell the uh, the, st- the story such as it is for a panel and i don't know how i've actually managed to crank keep cranking them out but like basically my method is i take five pictures i put it together i get it done in about an hour and uh, on a Saturday or a Sunday, and then I put them out throughout, throughout the week. Um, and the other reason I do them is because my best friend hates them. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and he and I, like being toxic males, <laughs> like to constantly insult each other and you know ride each other's asses about nonsense and just be jerks. And I'm like, well, what's going to drive him crazy? More of this. I've even got a few ones that only make sense to him that I've t- sent to him <laughs> just to annoy oh. him. That no one else, no one else is taking. Yeah, they're that. just in jokes that only he would get, but in the same format. Well, I know that not everything that you do is for spite. Um, <laughs> most couple things years, are, <laughs> most most things, but not everything. Uh, I know a couple years back, uh, you along with Declan May helped put together the um, the season of War anthology. Uh, yes, which well, you have you, a Declan May along with me is a more accurate description of that. Well, yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Um, but uh, you were definitely a part of that. Uh, and you got to write a uh, Doctor Visits Canada. Yes, uh, I made a short story, that. which was quite a lot of fun. Oh, thanks. Uh, any plans on taking up writing again? Uh, well, I did do a thing at Worldcon, um, the Worldcon Writers Workshop, and that was in August of this year. And I'm actually wearing the sweat, sweat uh, the hoodie right now. But um, so you basically had to write five thousand words of, of whatever. Um, and I just chose to take two chapters of a beginning chapters of a novel, and I did it essentially because every time I've gone to Worldcon before, I've had a massive case of imposter syndrome because you've got all these world famous authors walking around, and you're like, I suck. So I'm like, Well, damn it, this time I'll still suck, but I'll have done something about it. <laughs> so. So I wrote that, and then to my amazement, uh, the two authors and the one agent who were looking at it, and you don't get any deals out of this, they just look at your stuff and critique it, um, said, oh, we really liked it. I'm like, bah? <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I will probably keep going with that. Um, and in the meantime, I'll just keep writing uh, film stuff too, like scripts and what have you. Because I have done a little sure. of that on this side. Like I took a sketch class. Most people wanted to be there to act. I have no interest in acting whatsoever, except for voice acting, because it's easy. I mean, I say that's easy. It's easy for me to slough <laughs> off and do. I don't like being in front of cameras, what I'm trying to say. But but I do like writing the sketch part of it. It's just finding actors afterwards that's the problem. Sure, sure. And I know, again, we mentioned it before, you do have an interest in, in comics. Yes. Um, and you and I have discussed at some point in time... Uh, your interest but in i cannot draw scripts. which is why i have dollies instead of actual drawings right sure 
Sure, but you know the, the beautiful. There's there's very few people out there who are who are both writers and artists at the same time. Although in the comics world, um, and you probably know this better than I do, uh, no artist wants to work with a writer because the artist has their own damn ideas. Thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> which that's, fair. Well, you're the ones doing most of the work, so I can't say I blame them. That's true, and, and I've 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 met a couple who are like, you know what? I really just like being a jobbing artist. Uh, but it's true. Everyone sort of wants to be able to design their own characters and and. Run it in there. Yeah, and, you know, like I said, fair enough. just finished up with series 11 um what are your thoughts on the on the series so far i haven't i haven't listened to your reviews on oh, okay. uh, so i i'm i'm coming at this fairly new uh, so it'd be nice to hear and, and i want to talk with i kind of want to make this you know short but brief roundtable discussion too because you know brent and i while we do this once a month that's three or four episodes mm-hmm. go by before we actually talk about it so i'm, I'm kind of curious how you thought of the series in general as a whole you know as this demonstration of what this new team can do. And, um, yeah, what, what do you think? Uh, well, I'd say, um, I guess, I'll start with the doctor, Jody. I think from the, the word go, I thought she was fantastic. Like, she, I was completely convinced she was a doctor as soon as she falls into that train. And um, uh, and you don't get that with every doctor. It took a while for Capaldi. It took a little bit for Tennant. Uh, it didn't take any time at all for Smith. But it took longer than it did for her. She's the record holder so far. Um, except for maybe... John Hurt, and even then, like you don't have much choice <laughs> on that one. So, so uh, that she's uh, continued to be fantastic. I'm a little disappointed she hasn't had her big moment. On the other hand, I like that she doesn't need to have big moments like the other ones seem to. Like there was always this undercurrent of I'm the Doctor, I'm this big deal, and I'm really glad she doesn't do that because I'm kind of done with it, frankly. Like yeah, and I mm-hmm. I think Chibnall is too, or it didn't occur to him to do. And I'm I'd like to have her have a little more. Not that she doesn't have oomph, but given more opportunity for oomph in the stories, I guess. Uh, but having said that, I was talking to Stephen about this, and I was saying that I don't think this is as... Like, in the moment, you watch Stephen Moffat and even RTD stuff, and you're just kind of caught up in all the complex craziness of it. And these aren't that. They're... Simple is not the right word, but in, in neither is pedestrian. Those are all... They, they're just... That's connoting negativity that isn't there. It's um, uh, straightforward, I guess, is a better way to put it. And... And so I think it's maybe more fun to watch a Moffat or an RTD as it airs and you're sort of immersed in all the complicated nonsense that's going on through the season. But I was saying to Stephen, I said, well, but the old ones weren't like that. And if you just want to watch something, I think these will have better rewatch potential, frankly, than jumping in the middle going, let's kill Hitler and going, I completely forget what the hell's going on here. <laughs> like, <laughs> who's, who's on the what now? Whereas you don't need to do that with these ones. They're, they're pretty, you know, straight ahead. Um, because of the way they're doing it with no, you know, with very little continuity except the odd wink and a nudge here and there. Yeah, they're very user-friendly. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I That's think, a really good way of putting it. I think if I were to, if I wanted to introduce somebody to Doctor Who, this series is, is, I think, like, for instance, if I wanted to introduce my parents to Doctor Who, I think that would be a yeah. better series to do it with than something along the lines of, of I don't know, 
even the eleventh hour, which I think is a masterpiece. But mm-hmm. I, oh, I do too, and I love yeah. a lot of Moffat's stuff, and I love Moffat's writing, but but it isn't as user friendly. You're right; it's like it's like cracking open Linux versus Apple. <laughs> like that's not entirely a legit co- comparison, but. I don't. I don't even get the reference, but I'm going to take your word for it. Okay. How about you, Brent? What did you think of the the series now that it's kind of done? Uh, well, I've enjoyed it, and I've liked the uh, non-heavy art aspect of this year, like you're talking about, and um, also the slightly more lighthearted adventure tone of most of the stories. Uh, but having said all that, it could have used a lot more peril, uh, a lot more yes, and <laughs> yes, I agree with <laughs> the, that. Yeah, and the finale could have been more exciting, but uh, it looked great. But I, I think I'd sacrifice a little of the polished look if it means not wait, having to wait a year and a half between each season. Because uh, I know that that's that was one excuse they gave that oh we want to make it look great so we're gonna have you wait f- till spring of twenty twenty. Oh no. Uh, but yeah, as far as the characters. I'm with you. I think Jody jumped into the doctor right away, and um, there was no question there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really liked all the other characters, but but like I said about Yaz, I don't think they've done anything with. I don't feel like I know her, like I know the rest of the characters. Yeah, that's true. Graham's great. Well, they're all great, but yeah, we don't get as much of a chance to know her as compared to everybody else. Right. Even though we, you know, we've got a whole episode devoted to her, we're still like, well, we don't know much about you. We know more more about your family, frankly. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Um, Drew, how about you? Yeah, I, I liked it. I didn't love it. I don't think there wasn't an episode that I didn't like, I actively disliked. And there wasn't an episode that I, I think, uh, none of it stood out to me like, like other, you know, so it's, there's no mummy on the Orient express kind of thing. But again, I, it's a, it's so incredibly different. It's such a different viewing experience mm-hmm. that every episode I was so excited to watch it, to see what would happen. I agree. I f- wish there was more peril. Uh, I think there were only two instances where the villain turned out to actually be villainous. Uh, I think that it felt like it was the Graham show rather than the Doctor show. There's a little bit of that, yeah. I, yeah. But I think Bradley Walsh, it, having I've never seen him in anything else before, I think is a really good actor, and I enjoy his presence. But... Uh, I really like Jodie as the doctor, and I wish we had more with her than that relationship. I, I think there's, I mean, here's the thing. The, sh- the the first episode, I think, totally went off on the wrong foot by by uh, Fridging Grace, and that was a, a big stumbling block for me to really enjoy those first couple of episodes. But I think with Rosa, it started bringing it back. But, but I enjoyed it, and I haven't gotten a chance to rewatch the series yet. And I'm looking forward to that. Partip- uh, a couple of episodes in particular, I wanna, I'm excited about rewatching the uh, uh, Sarongo Conundrum again and uh, Witchfinders. So, so far, the only two episodes that I've rewatched more than once was Rosa and <clears throat> uh, The Demons of the Punjab, both of which I think were just excellent. Yeah, those really are my standouts, them. I think. I would definitely Yeah, agree. standouts. But, like, not ones that I I crave watching. And maybe it's because both of them dealt with a, a fairly substantial subject matter that takes a while to digest. Yeah. So You see it once and you kind of have to... It's like watching Schindler's List. I can watch it. It's a fantastic movie that I can watch once a year. 
Yeah. I mean, most Doctor Who I watched to have fun. So, like, I'll, and that's, I think, one of the main strengths for this season is I felt that the relationship between the Doctor and her companions, friends, fam, whatever they are, uh, was really good. I felt like they worked like a team. I, I really enjoyed that. And I, I'm, I agree with you, Warren. I got a little tired of the Doctor being sort of omnipotent and kind of a, a jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really nice to see a very different dynamic. I mean, I understand why they did it in the first place, because they had to differentiate themselves from the old series, and they did a fantastic job of doing that. And they got a whole new bunch of new fans in, because there's, but you can only go so far with it. And I think they had pretty much tuckered it out with Twice Upon a Time. I was like, okay, well, that's, you know, I'm glad that they're just going this completely different direction with it, which is not always going to be, you know, you drive off in a direction you don't know about, you're going to take a couple of wrong turns. Not even wrong turns, but you're going to see stuff you didn't expect, I guess. This is a really tortured metaphor, but but basically <laughs> it's different and maybe I don't like everything. Well, tough, you know, like, let's see where this thing goes. I also don't feel like the the series was exactly for me. I mean, I'm it, it's not against the series that, by any stretch of the imagination, but I feel like um, Chibnall's done a really good job creating a series that is easily accessible to new audience members. Mm. I think folks are more likely to jump on board, sort of what I said before, with something along these lines, especially young people. I think that I would feel a lot more comfortable showing this season in a public library to audiences than I would any of Capaldi's. Yeah, for I mean, a number I, I of like reasons. Capaldi's just fine, but I, it did push i heard anecdotally from quite a few people that i know who aren't huge super nerds eh, i stopped watching when he was a doctor and i'm like he's not a bad doctor they're not bad stories there's some real humdingers in there but that happened so what are you, sure. what are you gonna do <laughs> i've already sort of shown my hand when i'm talking about standout episodes uh for me um brent were there any for you that you really particularly liked from the whole season uh demons of the punjab was my absolute That's your number favorite. one? That's my absolute favorite. Uh, followed closely by either Rosa, The Witch Finders, or It Takes You Away. I liked all of those. All, all of the mm-hmm. rest were entertaining, but um, uh, Arachnids in the UK was horrible <laughs> to me. <laughs> I was, uh, that it was, was the only to me one. Too. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was, it was all good, just ex- except for that one. Yeah. Other than It Takes You Away, I would agree with, completely with your list and, and the order it's in. Um, it takes away didn't do much for me, and at the frog at the end, I'm like, okay, I've, you've, lost, you've lost me. <laughs> like this is as this is shades of Magnolia here. So, well, um, I heard about the frog before I saw it, and oh then when no. I saw it, I thought, well, I guess it could have taken the shape of anything. It just happened to be a frog because it liked frogs. I mean, I, I totally get where that's coming from. It just did not click anyway. <laughs> um, I would put the woman who fell to earth up there too because I think as opening stories for a doctor go it's one of the better ones it's not 11th hour but nothing is but I, it's definitely better than the other openers i think yeah i don't know 100 percent how i feel about it takes you away and i i think i specifically i've only listened to one group talk about it um but i've been trying to form my own opinion because in the moment i really enjoyed it uh and i've enjoyed it thinking about it but there's also per- certain parts like i just can't get over the fact that how angry the dad makes me uh just dick. in general yeah. for his, his his overall behavior but i also work with uh people who um have extreme addictions and uh, people who are under the depression a lot of depressed people and a lot of addicted people a lot of these folks come into my library and um we help them kind of find a new path and so on and so forth um and i get that 
there are people who are willing to kind of lose themselves in a certain reality. And I see it every single day Mm -hmm. when it's the children who suffer. So even though it really angers me to see it, it didn't feel unrealistic, which is unfortunate. You know, uh, it didn't seem, you know, uh, it didn't seem out of place and it didn't seem uh, unrealistic, but it did is not enjoyable for me to watch, you know, because mm-hmm. I keep on thinking about what that poor girl has to go through. Uh, and how messed and up she I might find... end up being because of it. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you know, it, it depends on sort of what you're what you're going for as far as the message is concern, uh, concerned there. But, and I only saw it know. once, and, and then we podcasted about it. So if I see it again, either my opinion will be reinforced or I'll go, oh, no, now that I know what's coming. I found that with a few Doctor Whos. It's just now that I know what the story is, it's a different experience and a better one. Yeah. But you have to have gotten through it in the first place and go and have whatever that opinion might be before you go back and then go, oh, I was wrong. 42 is a good example of that. 42, for whatever reason, we were super hyped about it, and it didn't live up to the hype. And I watched it a couple years ago, and I'm like, it's actually perfectly fine. I don't see what the problem is that we had to this in the first place. Yeah, I think it's I think it's anticipation sometimes mm-hmm. of what it might be. Yeah, we have to really, especially old fans, we have to worry about what our, you know, what we're bringing to the table and what we expect from the show versus well, what we're and even with this get. series, like because I I felt points where I'm like, oh, this isn't going to happen like it did for the past ten years, but that's on me, not on the show. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, like, but but I still have, but you still feel a tinge of disappointment because this thing didn't happen this way, and I'm used to it being more in quotes than than that. But like that's not the show's fault. Really, sure. like it's this it's, it's this thing now, and if you don't like it, well, just get used to it or don't. You know. Uh, speaking of which, um, how do you uh, both feel about the show not bringing back any recognizable enemies or characters, and just That's, going? I mean, I don't know. I don't have any inside knowledge on this, and I've actually been avoiding inside knowledge on it about the New Year's show because the press screening happened, and I've yet to hear from anybody what what's in it. But I suspect, based on guesswork. <laughs> that 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 will be where the, if they're going to that will be where they bring back a, an old school villain. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know that for a fact though. Like, maybe not. But do, but do you like the fact? I mean, was it nice to be able to watch it with? I don't want to say new eyes, but to to not. You know, we have these expectations, and a lot of that is this is how Doctor Who is supposed to be. And when you bring in a certain type of character, say the Daleks or the Cybermen or something like that, there's a Dalek story and there's a Cybermen story. But we didn't get any of that. We've got new creations and new situations that we've never seen the Doctor or those companions in before. And to go into it without those kind of expectations, like how does that, did, did that work for you? It's yes and no. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, because I, I applaud them for doing it in the first place. Uh, and also... I think, especially with Moffat's later years, um, he was really starting to go on a crutch for old school stuff. Like mm. it was much as I loved seeing the Movellans because I'm old. Like, <laughs> did we really need to see the Movellans? Like it was really cool. Don't get me wrong. And I, it was just a proper amount, like about ten seconds worth. But, but it was. But they were kind of starting to lean on that a lot. It's even with like, yeah, the Modesi and Cybermen are pretty cool to have now. But again, it is a bit of a, a bit of a crutch. Um, even though they are creepy. Uh, so I like that they didn't do that. On the other hand, I got kind of a class vibe off it in that in that you know like here's Tim Shaw, the bad guy, and at the end we've got Tim Shaw, the same not bad, but I wouldn't say outstanding bad guy. So that just kind of a kind of takes a bit of the air out of the tires. Whereas say the Daleks wouldn't also they would have been out of nowhere if they did that. Yeah. So I could see why they didn't. Like I I 
I, I totally see Chibnall's point in doing that. Like, because RTD did the same thing. He kind of, other than the Dalek, sort of ramped it up slowly when he got right down to it. And I guess the Autons, but the Autons are sort of, you know, super, superfluous to the process. That could have been anything, really. Um, so, so I get why, and it made sense if you're going to sort of reboot the show to do that and to have it stand on its own two feet. And who knows, maybe at some point more of these people will come back. I thought for sure the evil businessman in Arachnids in the UK was going to come back, but he didn't. So so I'm, it's a solid 50%, I guess, is what I'm saying here. You know, I really like that we get to have like new things and new villains and new characters and everything throughout the whole year. You don't have mm. to rely on all the old stuff. So that's good. Uh, the only problems, though, uh, would be... I don't really think there was really any uh, villains or bad guys this year that stood out that would well, come Colin back later. That's about it. <laughs> Him, really. too. Yeah, he was great. Um, and also, although it's Doctor Who and it feels like Doctor Who, it's really cemented as Doctor Who when you have a Dalek story or a, mm. or a Cyberman story. It sort of... Your brain sort of connects it with all the earlier stories you've seen. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's totally true. But again, that could be us just being old fans, too. Yeah. <laughs> like for some kid, let's say some six-year-old watching this, doesn't really matter if there's old villains, right? So to them, <laughs> Tim Shaw is this big deal. Yeah, and, and, and we might get more Stenza, right? Like there's there's that chance that we're going to get, uh, a, you know, like Tim Shaw's uncle or cousin uh, yeah. or that we might not see any Stenza, but they certainly were mentioned in more than one episode. So mm-hmm. that would be... And I'll I, take them over the Saladin if you're going to bring in a new villain. I will, Although I having will, said that... The I will angels fight, are great, fight so. to defend this Lazine. Well, <laughs> you were incorrect, sir. You were incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> Boomtown is all right. I'll give you that. <laughs> well, having said all that, what do you think of Chris Chibnall, uh, his first year as a showrunner versus the other showrunners we've had? Um, it's tough to. It's a tough call to make. He kept all the promises he said he was going to do, and um, more or less. And, I mean, I didn't know what to think of RTD, and I was just happy that he brought Doctor Who back, and I thought it was pretty impressive of him to do so. And then with Moffat, he just kind of whipped it off in this new direction with a lot more... I mean, RTD is a good writer, too. Um, I would say both of them, RTD and even more so Moffat, are more complicated writers than Chibnall. Chibnall's kind of straight ahead. Yeah. Which is what he kind of wanted to do, and I'm like, I want to wait for a second season to judge the guy, I guess. Like, people were ranting about Chibnall's got to go, but I'm like, eh, how's this any different than the last time, or the time before that, or the times in the 70s when people were ranting about whoever. Like, Doctor Who fans aren't happy unless they're angry, so for whatever reason. Um, so for me, uh, is it perfect? No. Is some of that my baggage? Yes. Is I want to see what he can do. And, um, and so far, the plots have been kind of iffy, but... Let's see what happens. He's got a whole year to work on the next one, so mm-hmm. more hits and misses, I guess, as I would say. I mean, I think this is just personal choice for the kind of stories that I enjoy. But I did find that if I look at the episodes I enjoyed the most from the ten episodes from the season, mm-hmm. the ones I enjoyed the most were not Chibnall episodes. That's true. Yes, um, same here. And it's and again, like I really like many of Chibnall's stories from the preceding eras. And so I think he is a good writer. And I agree with you that I think another season is going to help to understand in what direction he's sort of moving this show. Mm-hmm. Because judging it from its just first season, I don't, it, you know, it's 
I said this a lot during the Moffat era. I really find watching Doctor Who exhausting because Moffat doesn't allow you to think about That's true. Yes. a story by itself. You have to look at it as part of a greater whole. And it, I didn't actually know I, I could do this, but watching the New Chibnall era, every story, for the most part, is self-contained. And, and I find mm-hmm. that kind of refreshing and I can watch it and if I don't like it I don't have to worry about it but I don't have to think about it either like I don't have to refresh my refresh I don't have to watch you know four episodes review to watch the next episode just to figure out what's going on so that that was a benefit as well yeah that's true I would agree look there are things that need to be said and I'm going to say them you can sack me afterwards if you like I've been working for you now for four months I've liked the job, because although you put on a big pretense of being made of steel, it was quite obvious from early on that, in fact, you aren't. The things that you regard as signs of strength are actually the symptoms of weakness. You're frightened of the effects of alcohol, so you don't drink. You're frightened of emotional commitment, so you live a life like a monk. And because you're frightened of failure, you drive yourself harder than is either necessary or useful. And the result... You've become difficult to work with. The buzz goes around, you know. People avoid contact with you because they're beginning to be afraid of you. And you're getting left out in the cold. You see people when they come into this office, but I see them on their way out. You can't live like that. Not for very long, anyway. Something has to give. Well, I mean, it's great talking about Doctor Who. It's one of our favorite things to do. However, we also know that Doctor Who is not the end-all and be-all of what? fandom. How dare you? What? I know. I know. <laughs> 12 years Twelve years of weekly podcasts might evidence uh, uh, to the contrary. But um, when we have a guest on, and you are our guest, we like to ask them to bring on uh, a television show that they also like that is not Doctor Who. Warren, please tell us what you have chosen and why you chose it. I picked The Sandbaggers because um, in this era of peak TV, the thing that I have watched most of, not though not all of because I'm really terrible at commitment, uh, is this show from 1978 shot on tube cameras in London with which is a spy epic with no epic to it. It's it's basically, <laughs> the brilliant part of this whole show is that it's the spy stuff in the office before and after with a little cutaway in between every now and again to the mission itself. Like, the whole, it's like reverse James Bond. You don't get to see James Bond. You see a little bit of James Bond going to Morocco, which is actually, a, you know, a parking lot next door. And but most <laughs> of it is all this back and forth between the various levels of spy bureaucracy. And it's riveting. It's I don't know why, but it is. Uh, when you suggested this one, I decided rather than do any kind of research... Um, I decided to just jump right in and start watching. Now, I, and I'm going to say this for our listeners because we, we'll spoil a little bit of uh, particularly events that happened in the first season. But this is not available anywhere except for BritBox. Which um, is how I found it in the first place, yeah. Right. And, it's and it, you know, uh, having gotten the subscription for at least one month of BritBox, I am greatly enjoying it. I don't know if I'm going to, you know, keep it for an entire year, but it was certainly nice for this. It's great for the Doctor Who my wife is watching the Bletchley Circle and is loving that, uh, but I turned it on and it's a lot of people in seventies suits, yeah, being stuffy with one another, 
Yeah. And I don't think the scenery changes from a, one particular office for the first 25 minutes of the first I know, it's episode. it's great. I love it. It's amazing. <laughs> it's just so not what you expect it to be. And somehow it works. I mean, maybe it works for me anyway. Um, it's so very 70s. Like, I feel like I'm getting cancer watching this from all the smoking. <laughs> oh, my, and my God. My liver is just giving out watching all the drinking. It's just, oh, it's just, it's, and one of the, my favorite things about it is, is because, and same like Doctor Who and most British stuff, although not all, there's just, the Brits are better at being witty than any of us North, North American dummies are. <laughs> like, like there's, and especially the upper class ones in this show. Um, the whole thing is Neil Burnside, the guy, the ostensible hero of the show is, um, or the protagonist at any rate. Is, yeah, yeah. Um, he's, he's the ex husband of the daughter of one of the high up guys in the organization who of course being a high up guy is you know born of a certain uh high station <laughs> but he's just the very dry-witted old british aristocrat he'll say stuff like well that's a pain in the proverbial and just and just i just have to run it back and go oh beautiful <laughs> yeah you don't watch this show for action no, because there's, I mean, there's the odd bit, but it's your typical BBC 70s action, like a, a gun ricochet and somebody collapsing <laughs> once. <laughs> right, 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 right. There's explosions. There's explosions in the first episode. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it takes... There went the budget right there. 40 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, I feel like, you know, when you talk about Doctor Who having a really small budget and seeing how far they can stretch that because they have to create alien worlds and these costumes, and you can tell that it's, you know, tinfoil. Uh, but I cannot imagine what the budget of this show is, because it feels like they set up a camera in a room, uh, and, you know, and just say, go, be dry, be so incredibly dry. They're like, so dry, it's so good. No one smiles in this show either, which oh, is I really love it. funny. It's- <laughs> and they just have- kill people off willy-nilly throughout the series. It's just like, well, yeah. that guy's dead now. Yeah, that was uh, that's really impressive. And again, I'm not going to spoil who, but like you can't really have. It's almost Game of Thrones like. It's quite Game of Thrones, <laughs> yeah. yeah, except with suits and scotch. Like, yeah, <laughs> like for instance, yeah, with the episode seven, um, the final episode of the first season. I'm not going to say who, like you said, but Neil Burnside has to make this cold, cold decision that he then makes, and you're like, oh wow, I didn't expect that to go there. Holy crap! Yeah. It's uh, quite, yeah, it's impressive. Um, this, is a sh- this is a show about bureaucracy uh, and uh, accounting. Like they, I think only the Brits could do this. Yeah. I don't think oh. American or Canadian TV could ever pull this off. No. No, I mean, why would you, why would they want to? Like the, True. <laughs> this, is, this is essentially you're watching MI6 behind the scenes. Like that, that's, yeah. that's sort of what the SIS is, right? Like I don't think they ever call it MI6. Um, but, but I, I think if it's if it's a real thing, I'm not even sure if it is. I'm not. But one thing I'll give the show also, like they will mention stuff just offhand that at current events at the time, and yeah. I'm fairly well versed, thanks to Mad Magazine, in current events of the 70s and 80s. But <laughs> honestly, that's true. Like I know a lot of 60s and 70s history, mostly because I read Mag- Mad Magazine as a kid. But but having said all that, and I would go, "Who's Spiro Agnew, Dad?" And my dad would explain who Spiro Agnew was. <laughs> so so um. But in this, they mentioned Entebbe and Mogadishu. And I'm like, Mogadishu? What the hell? Because everybody knows about 1993 Mogadishu. I didn't know that a successful hostage rescue happened in the 70s until I Wikipedia'd it watching this thing. I'm like, right. how do people keep up with this? You had to watch the news to watch this show back in the day. <laughs> but I mean, I, I imagine in many ways, it's sort of like the uh, situations torn from the headlines 
that you yeah, get yeah. Uh, at the beginning. But they're forty-year-old headlines. Well, yeah, but at the time when they're watching it, I have the reverse experience of that because they have spitting image on um, on BritBox as well, and so. I used to watch Spinning Image when it came out in the 80s because it was on CBC TV. And I would laugh even though I didn't know who half these people were. Like they were just kind of funny looking puppets. And I'm like, well, I'll figure out one day who this guy is. Now I have the exact same problem because it's 30 years later and it's about whatever happened that week. (laughs) So I'm like, I think I remember that. I'm not sure. Well, I'd heard of this show, but I hadn't seen it until Warren mentioned it. So since there were only 20 episodes, I watched the whole thing in about a week and a half. Good God, man. Like uh, you do. Halfway through. Right, yeah, like I do. Uh I thought it would be an action-packed spy thriller, and it does have its moments, but it's really what happens in the planning stages of mm-hmm. the missions. So you find out about all the red tape and getting permission or not getting permission. <laughs> and uh, it was interesting seeing that side of things. But I have to say, and maybe we'll get into this in a minute, but it's the only show I can I can think of where the lead character is an absolute total jerk. Yeah, it's but great. You, you I just love can't, it. <laughs> you just can't stop watching it. The writing and the acting are just fantastic, and that really carries the show. It does. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't watched In the Thick of It, um, the, the, the show that kind of comp- – kind of launched Capaldi in Public Eye, but he's apparently a jerk in that one, right? He So Ironsides is, is sort of, or no, Burnsides. Um, Ironsides is a very different show. Uh, Burnside <laughs> is sort of a house. Um, kind of. He's like house and the Capaldi character, except my problem with all of Armando Inucci's stuff, including the Death Stalin, which I enjoyed, is that it's all so damn frenetic that I have a hard time keeping track of what the hell is going on. And at Veep, I find the exact same thing. It's just too much bang, 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 bang. This thing's happening. This thing's happening. The, the Sandbaggers is not that. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, no, it's I wouldn't true. say it's slow either, but it's definitely not bam, bam, bam. No, I followed it. And, and I felt like even, even when he had fairly complicated scenarios that he was going through, I felt that I, as an audience member, uh, could follow it quite well Mm -hmm. and i think it was probably easier if you were watching it at the time because they're making references to technology and and such that that is so antiquated now and Um, british bureaucracy they're like well that even that's clearly the cabinets i'm like i like i live under (laughs) a parliamentary democracy and i have no idea what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) right and then and then there's also um titles too right like so uh if you're if you're giving me a presentation with a, a military i kind of understand the hierarchy of the military but mm-hmm. then when you go, you know, you have to talk about the undersecretary. Don't know who that is. Yeah, but he's also thing. once, but he's a baron, baron something of the undersecretary of the interior. And I'm like, you know what? He's more important than you are. That's I get that. That's that's all I need. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I just gotta say, in Canada, even though we have a similar governmental system, none of that flouncy nonsense happens. <laughs> like, it's, right, there's right. a minister, there's a deputy minister. That's it. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing too, I think, is kind of fascinating. I don't think, and uh, in, in any of the episodes I watched. Do they explain why they're called the Sandbaggers? I don't think so. I mean, you'd know better than I would, Brett. But um... they mentioned it once, I believe, but I don't remember. I, I think I looked it up. Oh, I did too. I, I, I mean, I know what it means. Oh, okay. uh, it's it's a it basically sandbagging is wet works like they assassinations. Yeah, yeah, assassins. That's yeah. what it was. That's yeah. a very ballsy thing to refer to yourself. It's like, well, I can't get, I can't give you sag, sandbagger one. I mean, that's. And people know them as the sandbaggers too. Like they're they they're you know, in, in the first episode, uh, the the foreign government guy is just like, "Well, I need your sandbaggers," and I was like, "That is a 
it's really impressive if you're. If and they'll you're, say something. They'll say it very vehemently. He's a sandbagger. I'm like, yeah. okay. Well. <laughs> Another thing about this show that I don't know if I enjoy, but it's interesting to watch is that it is very much a product of the '70s. Besides all the smoking and the drinking, they, their attitudes towards women are. Oh my god! Say, how do we say oh, not yeah. so good? Oh, his secretary. Uh I, I, you know, I, I'm watching this going. If this were a show today. And a man would he would be fired like that, immediately. She would get him back something fierce, and that does not happen. Uh, it gets just progressively worse as this. No, it's 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 very much a product of its time. I felt that way most of the first season. I'm like, oh my god, he's treating Diane horribly. But then near the end of the first season, she kind of gives it back to him. Yeah, and and then they both sort of giggle at each other. So I, I wonder if that's just the way that they were. But then the new girl comes in, and I'm like, no, he treats her like crap. Too. Not like just crap. him. Everybody no, is really, all like, worse. They're just worse all than like, Diane. a woman is a sandbagger? What the hell? And I'm like, guys, come <laughs> on. Like, seriously? Warren, do you have a favorite character? Uh, well, it's it's a toss-up between Neil Burnside, because he's like, yeah, he's not he's not a nice guy, but he is utterly fascinating to watch. Um or, and I'm terrible with names in any show, but his his father-in-law is brilliant. Just, mm-hmm. just he'll show up every now and again and say something extraordinarily witty and then just saunter off and have a scotch. And I'm just like, oh, mwah, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Brent? Well, I like Willie Kane. He was realistic as you, as you would think of a spy would be. And, you know, he was brave, but you could tell he was a bit scared sometimes and he wasn't afraid to hold back how he felt about Burnside. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Uh, yeah. And as much as... As much of a jerk as they may, I don't know how far along you are, uh, Warren. But Halfway through series two. Okay. Um, there's a character coming up called Gibbs. Oh, yeah, yeah. He and, is just, ugh. Just want to punch him in the face. All right. But I, I quite liked him. <laughs> I didn't think he was as bad as they made him out to be. He was just incredibly honest. Uh, but, well, I've only but, seen the yeah, one episode I, with him, so yeah. Yeah, I, I would say uh, I would say Willie Kane for me. Yeah, I think this is a hard show to nail down a favorite outside of Burnside's and his dad because mm-hmm. everyone else sort of like people get replaced. Uh, people because either politically they get replaced because that's how governments work, or mm-hmm. they get replaced because <clears throat> they get brutally killed, or they get replaced because they. Uh, leave for love interest reasons um uh, but um yeah i mean burnside's great because i like watching a thinking man like i like yeah and that's exactly what he i did. like planners yeah. those are the characters that i like i like intelligent characters who have convictions and know how to get their way through wit rather than force because and they don't always win that's what i love about this show that they just they lose more than they win honestly yeah and it yeah. feels like uh the when when they're writing this right so this is um this is created by ian ian mcintosh um have you done any background research on mcintosh because oh, only if, a cursory one and i know that he disappeared weirdly after oh, the okay so series. you know this this is this is a so much more interesting when you know the backstories. Macintosh essentially may or may not have lived a similar life to yeah. what what was going on, and so it feels like, unlike a lot of writers who sort of make Mary Janes out of their main characters, the characters in this program feel realistic in that they are expendable, with the exception mm-hmm. of Burnside. 
you know, you don't know who is going to be leaving the show. But Burnside still, this is a show about the emotional toll, uh, the physical toll, and uh, well, in many ways, the political and financial toll. But like what this job will do to a human being and who, who and what you have to become in order to survive in it. And that's fascinating. I would agree. Yep. Yes, it is a. The, this show is not easy on its characters. <laughs> like they deal with a lot of stress, and they all go to go. Out, like now we're used to this from like the bleeding in of work life balance uh, and, and tech jobs and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but at the time in the seventies, you went home at five, <laughs> right? And nobody at the show goes home at five, and it's and it's made out to be this big deal. Yeah, the two. So when we ever bring someone on, we ask to give one or two suggestions as the episodes, and you chose. The first and seventh episodes from mm-hmm. the first season. Um, tell us a little bit why why you chose those. Uh, the first one because you just dive right in, like from right. the get go. You're like, oh my god, what the hell is happening here? And it, and it's it just kind of you sink or swim on this one. And 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 I like that it did really all the ingredients are there for the first episode, and they don't win in the first one. Like they basically screw it up. Um, and 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 eventually, people they're supposed to rescue get rescued, but but at what cost? Um, and what the the other one I picked the last episode of the first season, it's got this really interesting scheme that ends with tragedy and a terrible decision that Neil's got to make, and he makes it by the Jeebus. <laughs> like so, so that's why I like both those. And also, this has nothing to do with those two episodes, but but I I do like that. Um, later on in the second series, they just sit there and go, "Well, should we assassinate one of our own?" <laughs> and it's just a thing that hangs in the air. <laughs> Like, I don't think you'd see that now. No. Maybe not. Not on, well, see, it kind of depends on the show, right? Like, I, I keep on going back to Game of Thrones. Yeah, where true. This is a show where the pol- the end game is really all that matters, and you're mm-hmm. dealing with a writer who isn't particularly in love with his own characters, like, I, is, is happily willing to sacrifice them for the sake of the story, which mm-hmm. I think Macintosh is... Uh, is kind of putting forth with this with this program. Uh, what do you think, Brent? Uh, I like both of those, yeah. I, especially the seventh one mm-hmm. um, to finish out that first season. And, oh, boy, that decision. I hated Burnside for most of season two after that. Yeah, <laughs> don't blame me. Like, I, and yes. I, didn't, I didn't believe a word he said, you know, when he's talking about, oh, you know, i I got to protect my people. And I was like, yeah, sure, buddy. Uh, but, but I still... I didn't want to quit watching it. You know, I, I still, it had me. It was really compelling and, and kept me in there the whole time, even though I didn't like the main character for a bit. But then I did. I think uh, it's kind of fascinating that a show like this existed at the time. It's kind of like Breaking Bad when you think about it. Well, I, yeah. And I think, like, you're more apt to find scripts of this temper nowadays than, than I think as evidence of things I would have seen back then. I mean, like, again, my knowledge of 1970s British television is not that great, but it's getting better every time I have a new guest on because we we will go and delve into shows that, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't even know existed. And I'm always surprised at the maturity of the script writing. I, I feel in many ways that the stuff that I watched in the 70s is so kind of saccharine and, and kind of... It's sort of asinine. Like you could just kind of toss it aside, and it doesn't really matter. There's no heft to it. But this this show has a lot of heft. Watching things like Survivors, you know, where like really horrific things happen, it kind of hard to imagine that that's the sort of stuff that I guess I didn't watch in the '70s because I was a little kid. 
Um, yeah, same here. Exactly. Right. But also, now... there wasn't as much of it. Like, the day after was a big deal in 1983. And I've watched half of Threads, and I can't get through the rest. Because it is horrific, and it's from, like, 1981 or something. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Willie, what else could I do? I had to get her into the open and make sure. Who shot her? CIA agent. Ross had him brought over from the States. Originally, he was a backup on Mittag. He shot from the East? Mystery, no one will ever know. I know. But I trust you. I don't trust you. I'm the last one left. And you're not gonna kill me! Do you want my resignation now or in the morning? He won't leave, will he? Nor will I. Much as I want to. All right, just listeners, if you're if you're intrigued by this show, um, absolutely get a chance, and and if you have, especially if you have BritBox, see this. But we're going to spoil the end of the first season. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Burnside has to make a choice, and and I. I think it's fascinating to watch him come to the decision to kill the woman he loves. I assume it took both of you by surprise. Oh, it did. Yeah. yeah. I did yeah. not see yeah. that coming. Yeah. I absolutely mm-hmm. saw it coming. Um, but I kept on second guessing myself because he was so genuine in his pleas and urgency to make things happen and I think what's fascinating and I'd like to rewatch that episode specifically because I'm trying just in my memory to pinpoint the moment he decides to make that decision because if he did it earlier and his pleas to you know telling his his ex-father-in-law that he you know this is the woman he loves and that's that's the decision that causes like this to go through like he I don't think um he would have he would have allowed that um, had had he just gone. You know, it's just an, another agent because you know we don't care about the Hungarians. Obviously, we don't care about the Hungarians. No one cared about the Hungarians. But um, when he he's talking to and I'm, let's see, I'm trying to remember his name, Sir Jeffrey, right, Wellingham, yes. right, Sir Jeffrey. So Sir Jeffrey, like he has to say, like the French ambassador comes up with that plan. What a dick move! What a horrible <laughs> yeah. thing. He goes, yeah, yeah, we'll do this, but we're gonna make you dangle for it. Um, and I'm just kind of curious if you think like, did he have this in mind the entire time? Does he know like right from the get go that he's going to have to sacrifice her? Like, is she a pawn? Uh, I'm backtracking and guessing that when they were together in his apartment is when he decided it was going to happen. Yeah. Which makes him even worse. Actually. I agree. There's, there's this moment where he stops and there's this picture of her. Um, and I just want that wasn't creepy at all, right? <laughs> but there's a picture of her. She's it's black and white. She's unsmiling. There's zero emotion in that picture, and he and he's staring at it. And it almost is like, is that a picture that he took of her in their private time, or is that her picture from her dossier that he is yeah, just blown that's what up? I I'm like, that's weird, man. That's a little junior high creeper. <laughs> so what well, that is. they have a sexless relationship. Like True. he yeah. freely admits that they have not slept together, and I can't remember the exact words he says, but like she has a 
a distraction or something like that. And I'm like, what does that mean? Um, there's no sex in this show. I mean, like, I don't think no. anyone sleeps with anybody. So. Like, there's this is this this is the least James Bond aspect of the show, right? Like, there's, there's I mean, they no... imply it here and there, but yeah, sure. But there's like no honey trap. They mention honey traps, but there's no you know, we're not the suave agent. There's I think. <laughs> In in the final episode of the series, there's they definitely ogle some women in bikinis, uh, but I think well, that's Sir, the closest it comes. Sir to. Jeffrey also has a great line. I think it's Sir Jeffrey where, where at one point somebody's getting blackmailed. I can't remember if it's for like a gay affair or not. But anyway, somebody's getting blackmailed for an affair somewhere higher up the organization or like one of the cabinet ministers or something. And he goes, "Is it money? No, it's sex." And he goes, "Oh, there seems to be an awful lot of that around these days." Right. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it. It's interesting how they choose to present themselves um, mm-hmm. a- as the show because it, it, I think this is arguably the height of or just past the height of James Bond craze, right? Like the the it, it kind of came in, in the early '60s and it was really got a full head of steam uh, in the in the '70s, mid to late '70s. So this is probably. You know, in response to that, it's kind of interesting. And it's post watershed. Like they'll swear, and there's violence and all the rest of it. So it's that's not true. Like they probably couldn't have, but they could have. Yeah, yeah. Brent, what do you think about this? This the finale? Just kind of what we're discussing. Do you uh, any thoughts on what a dick uh, Burnside is? <laughs> like it's... Well, I like to believe that it that it came later because he did he did like her or maybe even love her. Because, like you were talking about that scene with the picture, uh, when she comes to his apartment, he tries to hide it. And she's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, nothing. And she looked, and she's like, that's my, um, <laughs> that's from my file or something like that. He had it blown up and put in his house. So that <laughs> that's was kind of weird. Yeah. That's no, weird. Uh, <laughs> I don't doubt that he, he loved her. Like, I think he did. Right. But I think it was his decision was probably way later on when he realized there was nothing else he could do. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there thinking, well, why don't they just give fake information to this dude for like a year, using his um, American buddy uh, Ross? And uh, but nope. And then when it happened, I still didn't think it was him. I thought it was the other side. And then uh, then they showed Willie's reaction, and I was like, oh my god, yeah, he really did that. <laughs> Something else so, that's kind uh, of fascinating about how they put this show together, there is little to no incidental music. This is a that's show. That's true, yeah. It's just the opening right. theme, which is great, and the closing theme. But yeah. There's very little in the way of music, you're right. Yeah. Also, and, one thing that's very completely out, out of the blue, why is McDonald's such a thing in this show? <laughs> like, I remember <laughs> McDonald's being more popular than not in the 70s, but I was also a kid who thought McDonald's was cool because I was a kid. So I don't know if it's, it was just a popular thing back in the day or if it's just they decided... It's not like it was a BBC or not a BBC show, but generally you didn't have sponsors for shows. I mean, it just it just seemed odd that they were and McDonald's an awful lot just to bring in the Americanness. I guess there's also a really cool American character we forgot to mention, the CIA character who is genuinely American too. Yeah, just it's Jeff Ross, right? So from the yeah, yeah. yeah. I find that fascinating. Um, I keep on saying fascinating, so I got to come up with a better adjective. Um, <laughs> but it, it's really nice to see that spy trope of meeting in the park you know like mm-hmm. they really like they'll and, and eat the big these, mac <laughs> yeah these long walks uh <laughs> where you have the cameras obviously someone's just backing up like they don't have steady cams so there's this long tracking shot where they're just having these conversations walking down the street and the scene will go on for like three or four minutes and you can tell that the people in the background they're just 
casual walkers who who will stop and look at the camera occasionally and mm-hmm. yeah he's an interesting character and that dynamic is is interesting as well yeah and they they make no bones about it like they they don't act like they're the lesser partner but they know their place in the world and it isn't the united states right so but but the, the cia guy is not a jerk about it or anything but they definitely they talk about a special relationship, but they also will just outright admit, oh, no, we don't have the pull that these guys do at some points in the show, which is kind of nice to see. Yeah, I guess it's the CIA is financially um, better off, right? Like, mm-hmm. so they end up leaning on on that connection, that special relationship a lot more in the uh, in the favor to the, the MI6, I guess. But this is also SIS. too two years out from Watergate. So so there's that aspect of it too. And in fact, the whole episode where they talk about assassination, they're very open about what happened with Kennedy or didn't and conspiracy. And they, they seem to buy conspiracy more than you'd think for a show from the 70s would. That's true. Yeah, I guess they do cover that. How soon before they relaunch Sandbaggers? I mean, you could. And I think it would work better in Britain than here. But I think I think it would work now with peak TV being what it is. But I was just thinking about this, like a show like this with characters like this after nine 11 for a good 10 years after nine 11, there's no way in hell they would make it. Sure. I don't think on either side of the pond, frankly, just because there was this predilection to show people as more heroic, like you say 24 or something like that. Right. Um, or at least a little more black and white. This is a show that is not in any way black and white. Really? Um, I think you could given them the way the world is now. Definitely. Uh, but would they? <laughs> That's the other thing. Do you think it would be a B- I mean, it would work better as a BBC show, I guess, wouldn't it? I think so. I think so. But I. But you, it would also have to be a lot more international, too. Um, and it, it would just be different because it, if you made a show like this that is by necessity about a bunch of stuff in an office, nobody would watch it. <laughs> like, you'd expect more out of it. We expect more out of Doctor Who. And that's the cheapest thing going, or was the cheapest thing going. So would we, we We would want actual proper execution of the spy hijinks off in the middle of nowhere, where, you know, we wouldn't be able to write any of that off anymore. So and would that take away from it? I'm not sure. And they also don't, there's not a lot of um, connections. Like, they, they'll occasionally reference things that happened in previous episodes, but this is not a show that has a uh, a running through line. Right, like it's, yeah. it doesn't Other reference than, itself too often, events. which is good. And you can just kind of dive in. And even I find it's like um, it's like watching the movie Wall Street. In the movie Wall Street, I don't know the first thing about all this financial mumbo jumbo. You don't really need to. It just kind of right. the essential points get through. And the same thing happens here. Uh, before we let you go, Warren, I kind of want to just read to you a, a brief paragraph from Wikipedia about this because um, I found this fascinating. So uh, they said that Sandbaggers was created by Ian McIntosh, former uh, Scottish former naval officer turned television writer who had previously achieved success on the acclaimed BBC series of Warship. He wrote all the episodes for the first two series of Sandbaggers, but in July 1979, during the shooting of the third season, he and his girlfriend uh, were declared lost at sea after their single-engine aircraft went missing over the Pacific Ocean near Alaska. And here's where it gets fun. Uh, a radio, uh, there's a radio call for help. Some of the details surrounding their disappearance have caused speculation about what actually occurred, including their stop at an abandoned U.S. Air Force base and the fact that the plane happened to crash in one small area that was neither covered by either United States or Soviet radar. Now, that is weird. Yeah. So it says, Macintosh disappeared after he had written just four of the scripts for the third season. So other writers were called in to bring the episode count up to seven. The Sandbaggers ends 
and I'm spoilers on an unresolved cliffhanger because ah. the producers decide that no one else could write the series as well as Macintosh and had then chose not to continue the show in his absence. I mean, I get it. I don't like it, but I get it. I think that's fascinating. And this again is something that you wouldn't get in a US show um and uh, because we have many writers, but when you get like just, you know, UK programming, you're going to get one person writing everything. And mm-hmm. frequently, and you know, you'll get like a six episode run and you'll have two really great episodes, two middling episodes and two garbage filler episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm looking at you, Blackadder. Um, <laughs> Ouch. Well, I love Blackadder, but, but you know, there's th- that formula is very true. And I think it's, it's the writers themselves. I'm paraphrasing them. Um, but I think it's fascinating that they went, we could absolutely uh, continue this programming. It, it had, it had the fan base. People were watching it, but they chose not to do it because they didn't feel like it was going to be true to the original creator's ideas. And I think that's quite admirable, though, you know, having seen the show and really enjoyed it, it's kind of a bummer. I think part of that is, yeah, this is the way they made TV over and still do make TV, and which has taken us forever to adopt the same methods of, you know, we just did 26 episodes probably for monetary reasons. Uh, in right. fact, I think it was, it, was, it was primarily for monetary reasons. They never had to really deal with that, right? They didn't really care if they got syndicated. So, and that's why they have Christmas specials ten years later for some show that was popular. Like, right. here's French and Saunders randomly on a Tuesday. Why? <laughs> because who cares? Like, but speaking, whereas of just, here, the, if you did that, it's a kiss of death. Right. But the economics of this program, this is a show that had commercial breaks. Um, that's you, true. It did. There are pauses in this program where you're absolutely going, oh, that's where they inserted the commercials. Because it was um, Yorkshire TV, I think, so it must have been a private network. But even mm, still, I think there's just a different culture of how you made TV over there than there was sure. here. So, Sure, that's true. Uh, any final thoughts, either of you? Uh, hmm. I'm looking forward to play, watching the rest of it, and I'm going to make a T-shirt <laughs> for it, too, for Gallifrey. I, I swear this. A, t- a T-shirt for it? Yep. Cool. <laughs> uh, no spoilers. Warren, but I enjoyed the third season more than I did the first two. Okay, so. that's as good to hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I enjoyed what I what I saw the third season as well. They really upped the ante uh, and the stakes uh, quite a bit. Um, oh, and one more thing. Yes. It's weird to watch a show about the Cold War when I've a lived through it and no longer experience it. It's just an odd thing to like live through the tail end of it, I guess. But still, yeah. from 1970 to 82 or whatever it was, 89, I guess we all to one degree or another experience this. So to get thrown back into it and go, oh, yeah, I guess Eastern Germany is a thing. <laughs> it's yeah. just odd. No, it's true because looking back with the hindsight of going, no, everything for the most part came out fine. But, you know, that's maybe 50% of all media was about that, right? Like, yeah. you know, we were either 50% actively... of everything was about yeah. that. Yeah, it's it's true. It is odd to go back and and watch that from... Also, not from a U.S. perspective, right? Because, that too. You know, the 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 U.K. is so much closer uh, in in some aspects than than we are. I guess I, I say this as um, an East Coaster, right? <laughs> it's different mm-hmm. if you're in Vancouver or on, in California or something along the Pacific, but true. I mean, and I can, as a Canadian, I can see bits and pieces where because there is some British stuff that sort of bleeds over to us, and uh, but then there's stuff that isn't. It's completely also as a true Canadian, they mentioned the Canadian spy forces at once, and they and they slagged them off. And I'm like, yeah, slag it off Canada. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're here for. <laughs> no one likes a polite spy. Uh, exactly. 
well, Warren, if people want to uh, find you online or uh, any of your works, where can they find you? Uh, let's see. Radio Free Scarrow is at RadioFreeScarrow.com. Uh, and if you want to see the Bookshelf Doctors, just throw F-R-E-Y-B-U-R-G into pretty much every social network, and that's where you're going to find me. And Bookshelf Doctors is on, let's see here, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram. And that's basically all I use, all four of those four. <laughs> Like I just, I just throw these. Th- actually, that's one of the reasons I started Bookshelf Doctors as well. It was just a way to throw stuff at social media and not actually interact with social media anymore. It's like, here you go, here's some fresh meat. Now leave me alone. <laughs> so, because social media, as you may have noticed, has gotten somewhat bad in the last little while. Well, thank you for joining us. Well, no problem. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, uh, and thank you for joining us on Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. Who and Company can be found on iHeartRadio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show on patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month. Episode 24, right, Brent? Yeah, and, and I'm calling the episode Warren Fry and the Sandbaggers. It sounds like a 50s doo-wop group or something. <laughs> wow, it does. I'm the worst lead man ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'd be good for is that one bit.